When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number Presented by Onyx Hunt, the world's most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Onyx Hunt app in the Apple iTunes or Google Play Store today. Start your free trial. Start scouting for the fall hunting season. Onyx has some new features coming at you this year. If you are familiar with sharing waypoints in the Onyx Hunt app, this year sharing waypoints is taken to the next level. You're going to be able to share more details, more information on those waypoints. You're going to be able to share them and actually take them 
away. You can revoke access, so you could share them with somebody to use for a limited time, and then you could revoke access to that waypoint. One of the things I love about Onyx Hunt, they're always delivering more value to the hands of Upland Hunters. And don't forget, a reminder from last week, if you want to get a great deal on your Onyx Hunt subscription and a membership to the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society, head over to roughgrousesociety.org, go to the blog, look for the post about Onyx Hunt and Rough Grouse Society, sign up at the conservation level, you get 12 months of Onyx for free with your conservation membership to Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. This podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. You haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. I'm hoping to get out and see Jerry and the gang one more time before the season starts. It's almost time, folks. We're almost there. Find out more about the Pine Ridge experience at pineridgegrousecamp.com. And by Dogtra Callers. For over 30 years, Dogtra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools, e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Check out Dogtra Callers by visiting dogtra.com. It's coming, folks. Get to dogtra.com. Get what you need now. It'll be here before you know it. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots. There's no drier boot than an 85% gum rubber boot from Gumleaf USA. Your feet will be dry, warm, comfortable all day. I love my Gumleaf boots. I'm going to be going on my third season coming up with my Gumleaf Vikings. They are my favorite boot to wear in the grouse woods. I don't wear anything else. Check it out, gumleafusa.com. Use the promo code PUP10. That's PUP10, 10% off from gumleafusa.com. And by Gordy and Sons Outfitters, when your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. And when your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail. At Gordy and Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt, not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about the gear, the guides, the expertise, all of it, gordyandsons.com. And by Dakota 283 Kennels, built to last a lifetime, one-piece rotomole design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in the kennel for a safe, successful hunting trip. Check out Dakota283.com and check out their new pricing structure. Most of the kennel prices have been reduced. If you looked at them before and you thought they were a little bit out of reach, head over to Dakota283.com and check it out. You might be surprised. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is one of my pals, my grouse hunt buddies, Mr. Mike Almon, aka at Grousewimes on Instagram. He set this podcast up he got me in touch with the folks that we had on he's a part of some of the work they are doing for the topic we are covering today so mike thanks buddy appreciate it project upland t-shirt headed your way real soon anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway all you have to do is leave us a rating leave us a review subscribe to the podcast share the podcast send us a feedback or a guest suggestion or set up an interview for me like mike did send me an email love to hear from our listeners nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com all right one announcement for you guys this week an upcoming event in duluth 
Minnesota. If you're from the area or nearby, I would love to see you at our first ever, I guess, Duluth Upland Pint Night at Clyde Ironworks Brewery. This is a co-hosted event. Project Upland is involved, but this event is for conservation and bringing like-minded folks, a.k.a. Upland bird hunters, together before the season starts to kick off another upland hunting season and bring everybody together to celebrate. We've got Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Rough Grouse Society, Pheasants Forever, Minnesota Sharp-Tailed Grouse Society. Everybody's involved. Everybody's going to be there. We're going to screen an unreleased Project Upland film. I'm working on live music. I don't have it confirmed yet, but I'm hopeful. It's going to be a blast. Thursday night, September 5th, Clyde Iron. There's a link in the show notes. Otherwise, check out the Project Upland Facebook page. Backcountry Hunters and Anglers has created an event for it. Find out more. If you have any questions, get in touch with me. I'd love to see you there. Come on out, folks. It's going to be a blast. All right, today's episode, we are talking Wisconsin sharp-tailed grouse. That's right, sharp-tailed grouse in Wisconsin. My guests today are Mark Wateka and Bob Hansen from the Wisconsin DNR and Dan Eklund of the Schwamigan Nicolay National Forest. Intelligent folks have an intelligent conversation about an iconic grouse species in perhaps not the first area you might envision when you're thinking about sharp-tailed grouse, but I assure you, they are there. I have seen them in Wisconsin, and I would love to see more of them, and that is where our conversation will go today. I hope you enjoy this one. Thanks for listening, everybody. Let's welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, Mark Wateka, Bob Hansen, and Dan Eckler. Well, you guys ready to roll? Yep. Sure. All right, let's do it. Welcome Project Upland Podcast. We are here at the DNR offices in Spooner, Wisconsin, not too far from my hometown of Duluth. We are here with some agency folks and going to have a fun conversation today talking about probably not the first grouse species that people would think about when we when we refer to northern Wisconsin, but we're going to talk about sharp-tailed grouse in Wisconsin and not just necessarily northern Wisconsin, but we're going to get some background there. And first, I want to introduce my guests. Thank you guys for being here. And I also want to give a shout out to my buddy, Mike Amon. He's part of, would it be the planning committee that you guys are on? Or you have kind of like an advisory committee? Right. Yeah. Mike sits on the uh, Wisconsin Sharp-Tailed Grouse Advisory Committee. Right. And Mike's, uh, he's always on the lookout for some good podcast guests. And he said this would be a good one. So he, he kind of got us in the room together. Let's start to my left. Introduce yourself, who you work for, kind of job position title, the basics. Sure. So my name's Dan Eklund, and I'm the forest wildlife biologist and wildlife program manager for the Schwamigan Nicolay National Forest in Wisconsin. And my name is Mark Wateka. I'm the upland wildlife ecologist and farm bill specialist with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. So I cover policy and management for our upland game birds, as well as uh, some of the private lands policy through farm bill conservation programs. My name is Bob Hansen. I'm the Northwest Sands Wildlife Biologist in the Northwest part of Wisconsin, obviously, uh, specializing in Barron's Habitat and Landscape Level Management. Excellent. Mark, uh, I promise not to ask you any questions about rough grouse today. <laughs> <laughs> we might we might reference them, reference them uh, here and there, but lots to talk about on that topic and probably could warrant a, another podcast entirely. Again, thank you guys for joining me today. I'm really excited about this. Let's just address this kind of right away. There was, there was in my local paper, Duluth News Tribune, there was an announcement that came out that the Wisconsin sharp-tailed grouse season will not take place this fall. 
And so many listeners may not even be familiar with the sharptail season. Like I said, the sharptail grouse is probably not the first thing people think about in Wisconsin, but let's just address that season closure. What did the season look like previously and talk about the closure this year? And we will talk about the reasons and the impacts why it's going to be closed throughout the podcast. Sure, sure. So I guess in terms of a process here, yep, we... Every year, the, the Sharptail Grouse uh, Advisory Committee will look at things like lack survey numbers and uh, talk through a permitting process. So in recent years, I'll say, I believe it's three out of the last six years now, no season has been held in the state of Wisconsin. In the years where a season has been held and permits were issued, it's generally been fairly limited numbers, uh, almost a trophy hunt, if you will, with 25 to about 100 permits issued here in recent years. So 25 to 100 permits, and that is that one bird per permit? Correct, yes. Okay. So it's essentially a, a carcass tag that allows you to harvest one bird with that permit. Right. So relatively speaking, we're talking about a very small, very small hunt. And, and certainly there is motivation there to maintain a hunting season because it maintains awareness from the general public. People hunt birds, they, they value them, and they appreciate them. And while we still want that to happen, the situation is right now that the advisory committee says, there are not enough birds to allow that to happen. Essentially so, yep. You know, numbers were up a little bit this year compared to last year. Diving into some of the new and emerging research, uh, there are some new concerns raised about the population this year. So I, I guess from the committee's perspective, it's always difficult because a lot of the research on upland game birds shows that harvest is largely compensatory, meaning that the birds that we're harvesting in the fall were not likely to survive through the, the winter to the breeding season. So generally speaking, the research shows that uh, hunting has little impact on, on populations of, of game birds. But we're in a bit of a unique situation here with sharp-tailed grouse in Wisconsin where we have a fairly small and isolated population. And of course, there's not a lot of research on there on hunting small isolated populations. So the question then becomes, is hunting potentially additive where some of the birds we're killing would have made it through the winter and would have contributed to, to reproduction in the following year. And so there's, a, there's always that discussion at the committee level, but there's, I guess, a lack of scientific research on there on harvest effects on such a small population. So yeah. over the last several years, we've been working with the University of Wisconsin in Madison, uh, looking at uh, both of our prairie grouse species here in the state, sharptails and prairie chickens, and looking at long-term viability of those populations. And one of the products to come from this PhD study was a population viability analysis for sharp-tailed grouse. A little background on what a population viability analysis is. Uh, essentially, you're looking at each of the subpopulations in the state, so these local populations, and you're looking at essentially what the risk of their local extinction is over a period of time, in this case, over 50 years. And what we saw is that over 50 years, our best subpopulation of sharp-tailed grouse on Namakog and Barron's wildlife area already has a fairly high risk of what we call quasi-extinction or local extinction on Namakog and Barron's. So there's some concern raised there already about long-term viability. But what this PhD student was able to model was the potential impacts of increased harvest. And even the take of five additional hens took essentially our best-case scenario which was, I think, 10 to about 10 percent yeah. uh, local extinction race, and it, it doubled it just just by harvesting five individuals. So, uh, given that that was our best case scenario, that it's it's moving the needle that much on local extinction risk, the committee ultimately made the recommendation to not issue permits this year. Yeah, and from a just a common sense perspective, 
when you talk about percentages, the smaller that number is, you know, one, two, three birds, that's a, that's a big percentage when you have a small percentage to begin with, right? Yes. Where if you've got a million birds, a, a small percentage of harvest, a 5% harvest, it's, it's a lot different. And then you get into wildlife, fragmented population. Most upland birds are not dissimilar in that they need large tracts of unobstructed or at least connected habitat. And we're talking about some areas that are, there's great habitat, but it's fragmented and it's it's not as connected as I think we'd like it to be. Absolutely, that's correct. And then another thing to factor in too is we're issuing permits generally at a game management unit level. So, uh, you know, uh, portions of a, a couple counties essentially, but all of that hunting pressure is largely concentrated onto a single property, and that's that's essentially Namakagan Barrens. There's some pressure likely up on Douglas County wildlife area as well, but much of that pressure is going to be concentrated on what's essentially our best remaining subpopulation of sharp-tailed grouse, and that that raises concerns, you know, other concerns as well of what impact are we having on our best remaining subpopulation by concentrating all of that harvest effort on that one small area? Yeah, limited limited areas where these birds actually are, and you open up hunting and pressure, and that pressure gets concentrated where it's just it's much different than a population that is spread out over a lot of different areas where people have access to hunt them. All right, that's the situation right now. That is the recommendation from the advisor, advisory committee this year. I do want to rewind a little bit. I want to set the stage. I want to talk about the habitat and the history of sharp tails in Wisconsin and specifically this, the sands country. And so I'm, I'm thinking this is going to involve Dan and, and Bob, probably if you guys want to talk about your individual areas and, and maybe, you know, if you could talk about the history of the sharp tail grouse in Wisconsin. I can talk a little about the Northwest sands to get us started. So the Wisconsin Northwest <laughs> sands is this huge uh, sandy area, about 1.2 million acres in size. It's in the Northwest part of the state stretches from uh, down in Polk County, close to St. Croix Falls, all the way up into the Bayfield Peninsula and uh, it's largely pine barrens habitat. This pine barrens habitat was shaped largely by fire. These dry, uh, drought, droughty sands dry out, and uh, fire is a major player in, in the shaping of the system. It's really a cool system because you got these fire-adapted tree species like jack pine, aspen, and oak, and you also have these really nice prairie-type species too. Uh, the same big blue stem you have on Iowa is up here, a uh, little blue stem as well, and Indian grass, uh, a lot of June grass blooming right now, and a lot of the forb-type prairie uh, wildflower species as well. Then mixed into that additionally is uh, these... Uh, really nice uh, herbaceous shrubs that are uh, kind of more like the heath-type family. That's kind of succulent shrubs. A lot of blueberries. A lot of blueberries blooming right now. People are all picking them. So it's kind of kind of the mix of the trees, the shrubs, and the prairie all in one place, all trying to yep. occupy the same place. And what happens over time is fires return maybe every 3 to 12 years as a kind of a low, lower fire to help uh, replenish and uh, restock the setback succession I should say and, and get the prairie to start over again but then also then you'd have larger fires probably over 12 to 25 years that really hit it hard and, and set back to tree species to where over space and time you had this kind of shifting mosaic of spots that were more open and also then spots that were more wooded and that kind of moved around the landscape and we like to say that in the northwest hands is roughly about half to maybe two-thirds open for the most part it's yep. all just <laughs> a snapshot in time so you had plenty of ground there you think about 1.2 million acres you know, 600,000 or so open at one time, it would be half, and that's a lot of room for sharp tails. And so now we're more limited to the wildlife areas and some other disturbances that have happened on the landscape, and that's kind of why we're in the bind we are with the sharp tails and some of the other barren-type species as well. Sure. 
Yep. They need it more open open country. Dan's got a bunch of it to the north. Sure. Yep. <clears throat> so we have, uh, upon acquisition in the 30s, when the Forest Service was asked to acquire lands that went tax forfeit and the counties couldn't afford them, the state didn't want them. When we inherited, of course, there was the great cutover. So you had the barrens and you had all these fires. And then, then there was the great log off of Wisconsin. And that opened up more land. And, of course, fires came with slash and that. And so we inherited the Washburn district. I have sharp tails both on the Park Falls district and heavy soils. And then I have sharp tail management on the Washburn district in the Northwest Sands. When we acquired those properties, sharp tails were very abundant. They had not only had taken advantage of that mosaic that had come from the normal fire regime, but they also took advantage of this log off and the fire that came with that. Mm. And so the CCC era entered and the great plant up, the great public lands initiative began, and uh, the Forest Service at that time, a fledgling agency, decided the best thing we could do was go plant trees on a barrens. And so we did that and left a very small core of about, at that time, about 12,000 acres that we didn't trench plant and try to grow red pine, you know, try to reforest the land, so to speak, even though that place had traditionally not been a driving force. It had been this mosaic of of forest. So ironically, when you look at that, when I go back into the original forest records and we took counts in those days, the Department of Natural Resources at that stage was a very small fledgling agency called the Wisconsin Conservation department and we weren't much bigger but i look back in our records and they report in the muckwa barrens area of 10 12 14,000 acres and in those days they called them pinnated grouse but we know they weren't prairie chickens hmm. and so in follow-up counts from the conservation department uw madison it from what i can tell from the records it's just, i suspect that maybe leopold wandered around up there a little bit wow. from what i can get but what they concluded was that this was a sharptail place. Sharptails were native to this place. This should be barrens. And so in 1948, we entered into an agreement with the Wisconsin Conservation Department that still resides today. It's never been abrogated or, or walked away from by agreement of the parties. And so we kind of came to our realization in the early 2000s that it was time for us to really not just grow trees for the sake of trees. It was time to really go back and try to restore that Barron's ecosystem. So, so through our Northwest Sands project and subsequent other projects that have tailed onto it, we've kind of reopened that 14,000 acres of Mukwa Barrens that we maintain with about a 12,000 acre core habitat that is that Barrens that Bob described with essentially kind of a rolling Barrens around it of another several thousand acres where we're thinking about timber sales in order to, uh, try to manage that force and give those temporary openings. And on top of that, we've try, we are trying our darndest to put that fire regime back on the landscape within the constraints of prescribed fire and with humans now living in various places they didn't before. But so we've had a robust burning program. And to give you a sense of that, this year alone, we burned over 7,000 acres up wow. there. And we still have another 500 acres on the books we'd like to do before this the fall comes and it gets too cold. And so our whole goal... As, as we've talked about it um, amongst ourselves, the committee is, you know, you have Crex Meadows on one end, a historic stronghold. Mukwa has a historic stronghold that went through some real feast and famine to the point where we did a reintroduction. We did a restocking, so to speak. In order to create strongholds, as Bob does that good work in between and finds partners and landowners who are willing to, to join us in the endeavor of a landscape, and so uh, that's pretty much what's going on. You know, like I said, I have two populations. The other populations on heavy soils and struggles from the same problem. 
It's in a place that's not connected to anything else. And so it's, it's another strategy to be thought about is in the sands, it's, it's a delineatable. What do you do with heavy soil populations? Do you pick them up and move them? Or do you try to connect them as well? And so we have a long history. We've been managing sharp tails since the 40s, since the late 30s, early 40s. Um, it's sometimes really good, sometimes maybe not so good. It's a really interesting parallel, too, between our two prairie grouse species in the state. Dan talked about the great cutover, and, you know, we essentially logged off the entire, you know, the, all of the forests of Wisconsin in fairly short order from the late 1800s into the early 1900s. So you created this wide open landscape that was very suitable for prairie grouse. And at one point, at least for greater prairie chicken, they suspected we had them in all 72 counties in the state, which this day and age is astounding to wow. think about. Yeah. But just through succession and, of course, development, uh, new agriculture, uh, regrowth of forests, those areas where both prairie grouse species occurred just continued to shrink and shrink. And now we have a situation where our, our sharp-tailed grouse are, are largely living in these these large open barrens that are kind of uh, islands in a sea of trees. And then, of course, our prairie chickens are in some of the last largest remaining tracts of grasslands in central Wisconsin, surrounded by a sea of agriculture, essentially. So interesting parallels between the two species, certainly. Yeah, very much so. Dan, I'm curious, on the heavy soil sharp-tailed grouse, what, is that, what does that habitat look like? And maybe I'm just getting to know this, differentiate between heavy soils and sure. know, sandy soil and heavy soil. So Bob did a really good description. You know, these sandy soils are very dry. They're kind of on the beach sandy side is what I kind of tell common folk when I use the term sandy or we use the term xeric. You, know, you kind of think about it walking on a beach in a way, but it's able to, it has just enough moisture and just enough loam to whole vegetation. Heavy soils is a different cat. So what heavy soils are is they're, they're silt cap loams, aka they're what the glacier left when it ground all the rock material. And so it's really fine material. The best way I can describe it is you're managing basically a willow, tag alder, aspen, muck ground is a really good. So if I took you to Riley compared to muck or anything that you would see out here west, what you would see is not pin oak, not aspen, not some of those brush species, you know, scrub cherry, those kind of things. What you would see is willow, tag alder, tall grasses. You would have less ferns. You would have more grasses in that mix. Yep. And when you walk through it in the spring, you'll have to have your rubber boots on because your feet will be wet. And the birds are using the embedded bogs, so there's bog complexes on that property. The traditional, what you would think, is spruce grouse habitat, sure. other than tree density. If I took you out there, that's what it would look like. But that's where sharptails will spend part of their time. They've adapted themselves to live on that environment and use those adjacent uplands. So on that property, we manage about 6,000 acres in open. And so what we're managing is really that tension of what folks would call shrubland birds. It would be a lot more what you would see for sharptails in northwestern Minnesota, okay. where you'd leave that ag field and immediately you wander into that aspen willow thicket on that peatland in like Marshall County and north. Yep. That that would be more of what our heavy soils look like. Only it's not peat, it's true. It goes right to mineral soil and it's rocky and mucky. Gotcha. It never ceases to amaze me, especially when we're talking about the native growth species. I mean, they they survived here for a reason. They know how to adapt the variety of habitat and terrain that they can use with no matter what species it is. It's 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 amazing, really. Let's talk about the barren's habitat a little bit and you know you mentioned this word core which i picked up a little bit on that from talking to mike and there's a bayfield county 
Baron's project as well. And I kind of see that, you know, you want to maintain this core of open area and then you manage the surrounding area with fire. I mean, burning 7,000 acres, that's, that's pretty unbelievable. Let's talk a little bit about how you manage a Baron's area. So I'll give you our perspective and, and Mark and Bob can fill in from DNR's perspective. It's much the same, but it always has a twist. So as we've talked as three guys and with the committee is when you have this long stretch of sand, we're managing a very small percentage currently of what historically existed, a very small percentage. So kind of what you have is you're trying to, we kind of use core as a way to say, this is where we're going to stand our ground until things get better. We're going to make the optimum. So if you think about it from rough grouse, it's like having a forced stand that has various age classes with, you know, that edge. It's the best of the best. Our goal with core habitat is to get, is to try to sustain the best of the best and hold our nose and keep things moving until we can make more connections till we can make more land in that condition. On the forest service side and in many places, it involves kind of two major pieces. It involves dealing with trees. Where do we want them? Where do we don't? What density do we want them? What species do we want? What would have historically been here? You know, should it be white pine? Probably not. Should it be red pine? Maybe some. Should it have some oak? Yes. Should it have jack pine? Yes. And then comes that aspect. So managing timber is pretty easy. We want to get rid of that. We're hiring you. Let's go cut it down. Sure. What's hard is the fire part. Because these fires, stand replacing fires, as Bob described, those those bigger, more intense fires, didn't come in spring. They came summer, fall most of the time if you look at fire regimes. And they were stand replacing fires. So it means they burned everything up like you see out west when you have big fires. So our goal is to try to put that fire on the land and either sustain a condition or push a condition in the direction we want it to go. So what that means is we have to figure out when, how much, how often. And we're spending a lot of time still working on that because we've been burning Mukwa Barrens for 60 some odd years. And we stood back after 60 years and went, huh, how come it doesn't look like it should? What we came to realize was it's really, it makes everybody feel good when you go burn brown grass and brush in the spring under the theory that if I catch it just as the buds are coming to the woody, I'll kill it. Problem is, yeah, it did that, but it also lays down fertilizer. The soil's cold. The rains come. Now I get a flush and guess what? I just got another flush of woody vegetation I got to deal with. So what we're trying to do is move those burns around so that we sucker punch, if I could use that term. We sucker punch plants in the late part of the season when they're gathering carbohydrates to get ready for winter. And we force them to flush then and then the frost gets them. Or we scar them enough that they just can't recover and then winter finishes them off. So the fire part is the really difficult part. And it's the part that takes a lot of to work with the public and at least on our agency side because people are always okay with cutting trees per se to some level but putting fire in a landscape you know people kind of get freaked out about that i don't know if bob mark you have oh yeah in the wildlife areas you know kind of these cores are are basically like wildlife areas much like makwa moving from makwa you have a a core at the barns barrens as part of the bayfield county forest and you also have one of the douglas county wildlife area namakagan barrens wildlife area then cracks metals wildlife areas where we're managing um, much like dan's talking about with fire and and trying to hold that core together 
a lot of these properties have been around quite a while now, and the public's you know come around and accepted it, and a lot of them now have friends groups and uh, so have support that way. So that's really a great thing to have to have that public support, not only when it comes time for maybe getting some letters of support for some plans you're writing, but maybe when you're somebody stocking at the coffee stash shop too, somebody else can say, hey, yeah, it's a great place. This is what's going on there, and it's a cool spot to go visit. Yep. And we'd like to see that tourism part as part of that as well. So we're talking there a lot, a lot about managing the wildlife areas and the core property and uh, how to use the fire on those as well. And then we mentioned the, the rolling barrens as well. And what the rolling barrens is, is where either you have a core property and you're doing some timber harvest around it to supplement the size and uh, the, the feeling of that openness that the sharp grouse require being an area sense of species that mm-hmm. need to be more open and a bigger scale. Uh, you're either doing it that way or some other things that we're doing now with some of the county forests and even with the private industrial forests is doing uh, large-scale management, block-style management. Say maybe you pick out an area of maybe about 5,000 acres in size. And over time, you start cutting kind of on one side of it and work your way through it and do harvest, you know, whether it be every year, every few years, but keep adding on to that last cut was just done. And that way you kind of move that opening around in that bigger block and that might take 50 years to do. So yep. it takes long-term forest management. The Barnes Parents Plan we just mentioned, they actually had it really planned out to the year 2082. So long-term strategic thinking. Yep. And uh, we, we know we're going to be changing that plan because Mother Nature is going to throw some curveballs at us. And we've already changed that plan a little bit. But still, it's it's uh, it's kind of the direction we're going. And we have kind of a guidelines of where we're going to take it. I think that was one of the biggest takeaways I, I had. I was reading that plan a little bit and just kind of familiarizing myself with it because it's, it's very close to my cabin, actually. But the fact that the timeline was out to 2082 and you think of some of this long-term planning management, it's like, I won't even be around to see it, but you guys are working on that and you you have to take that view, right? But mm-hmm. knowing that there's going to be some curveballs along the way, I mean, that's the complexity of habitat management and wildlife conservation. Definitely. When you're talking forest, uh, definitely. So and these, this is mostly geared towards jack pine and a lot of those earlier types. I mean, this is a jack pine barren, so it does make sense to look at jack pine as the right tree species. But also jack pine has a, is a quick-growing tree that has it gets to uh, maturity fast. So like the Barnes Barrens plan, they're figuring a rotation of maybe 48 years so you can get back into it and open it back up again sooner versus other tree species, say red pine or something like that, they're going to go you know, longer. Mm. And there's that's a huge range in how far people want to take some of those species, uh, red pine for example you know 60 80 years sometimes longer sometimes shorter depending on the mentality of that type of forest sure and what their what their products are that they're trying to get out of it regarding fire that is a topic that it's kind of at the forefront of some of the stuff i'm working on we we helped put out an article for rough grouse society last week about fire and it was worked on by john steigerwald who i'm sure you guys you guys know and he had some he had some really really neat information in there about how i think he did his math or a thesis paper on fire and talking about how often the fire came across the landscape and dan you touched on that i think in the article i think it was seven to eight years and you can tell by the fire scarring on some of these trees and like oaks and jack pine they've got real thick bark to that they adapted to deal with these fires and it would come come through and and burn off the understory but the public perception that was that was the angle we were working on because again fires it can be scary, right? It can be scary, especially when you, the fire stuff that you see on the news is it, when it's out West, they're having these big raging fires and people are losing homes and stuff, but fire as a management tool, while you still need to be very cautious, it's a, it's a much different kind of fire. Oh, absolutely. We all can speak to that is, you know, the simple fact is, is these landscapes evolved under fire, whether or not humans long before us used it as a tool to make their homes better and attract something to eat or whether Mother Nature set it up that way with storms or whatever. 
But these landscapes adapted with fire, and you know, and and so what we've come to realize because you know we've come through that cycle of fi- all fire suppression is good. Well, what we've come to learn is, yeah, no, some fire suppression is necessary. Some is good, um, but in other places you need to change that mentality, and and it is. But the public's coming along. We even see that out west with fires is, you know, we're using more and more prescribed fire to reduce the idea of having these big catastrophic western fires that you see on the TV all the time that everybody kind of freaks out about. And so the biggest thing is fire is a great tool. It covers acres fast. It can be very economical to do because it can cover acres fast. But what it requires on the front end is a lot more planning than just your typical, we're going to go cut it down and move on to the next stand. And so that's where we spend a bulk of our time is that planning part. What do we need? And then windows, getting a window, getting a moment in time where we can put that fire on the ground and not worry about having it catch on fire and burn people's cabins down so that we, you know, we can manage it the way it needs to be managed. So let's just touch briefly on additional wildlife on Barron's. Bob, you mentioned you have kind of the tourism aspect. And I, I can just say from my perspective, I spent, I went to the Namakagan Barrens actually, and was there at sunrise. And it was very cool to be in that kind of a place at sunrise, just a completely different kind of habitat. And, it, you know, it's right there kind of in my backyard per se, but let's talk about what are some of the other wildlife species that are barrens dependent? Because I, I feel like I have heard about that a little bit recently. Sure, definitely. Uh, Namakog and barrens be a great spot to be at sunrise and hear upland sandpipers sounding off and yep. kind of doing that cat call, whistling at you, uh, vesper sparrows, um, Let's see, uh, you know, even some of the, like, uh, badgers and stuff, they love the sand country. It's easy to dig and it's open. They love that sure. type of stuff. Uh, a lot of our canid species, lots of wolf tracks, alternate emacog and barrens, but also coyote and uh, wolf fox species as well. Bobcat will use it a fair amount. Definitely uh, bears are going to be out there, too, a very active bear area. So you got a lot of those uh, kind of a more rare species, and you also have, you know, a lot of that more kind of common mammals as well. Uh, let's see, what else we have, like? Metal larks in, in oh, places, sure. stuff yep. like that. More of those western type species, and then you know, and then rolling bear does give you a whole different complex. But then you actually have trees growing. So uh, Kirkland's warbler is, is still federally endangered, right? They haven't taken it off list yet. Still endangered okay. as of this moment. Okay, so we we do see that. Like at the Barnes Barrens, we talked about that. They have Kirkland's yep. warblers. They're a federal endangered species. A uh, neat thing about that is I went out and looked at the stand that they were trying to find them in because they thought they would be there. I went out with the researcher, and he told me they he had just sharp flush sharp tails out of that stand the week before. Well, of course, the week after I left, he actually found Kirkland's in that stand. So the crossover between species right there, right sure. in the same exact stand. So it's kind of cool to see that where you could have a game species that we're trying to work on and also a federal endangered bird species in the same place using the same habitat. That's neat. And what we like to say, too, is then as the uh, the pine barrens keeps growing and you have others, other things like uh, Kirkland's, or no, Connecticut Warbler likes to be in that uh, pine-type system. Then, uh, of course, the uh, ever-present uh, whipper whorls, especially on the edges and the more mature stands. Uh, and then what we really find in this part of the state, too, is, you know, usually most parts of the state you think about turkeys, you think, oh, yeah, oak ridges, stuff like that. But up here, you have to survive the winter in, in the pine stands before you can gobble on the oak ridge. So yeah. definitely mix in with these pine and these barrens projects with pine adjacent, I see a lot of turkeys on them because they have the great roost sites in the pine and you come across the fire break into what's being managed as more of a wildlife area type court property with the op- more open barrens. You have great brood rearing, nesting, whole nine yards right there for feeding habitat. So I definitely saw some turkey tracks when I was out last, last summer, actually. Yeah. But yeah, that you know, I think it's important to highlight the 
of course, we're, we're very focused on game birds on this podcast in particular, but so often the, you know, the best con- conservation work happens when you unite people for common cause, right? So whether you're a warbler fan, whether you're a bird watcher, or you're into some of these other species, or you're just a fan of sharp-tailed grouse, I mean, that's kind of what we need people to unite on. So some of these habitats properties, what do we know about the birds? Let's talk a little bit about sharp-tails. What do we know about the birds right now and their use of these fragmented, isolated pieces of habitat that are, you know, they're not right next to each other, but Mike told me a few interesting tidbits about birds perhaps traveling back and forth between some of that. So what do we know about that? Well, I've got some stuff for the birds that are presently on, on these core properties. We know that they're presently not moving between the properties, which is why we're trying to, you know, create this connectivity to okay. get them to move around and, and be uh, connected. And what we're finding from a research standpoint, we heard from practically from Minnesota, is that they are beginning to genetically kind of specialize to that type of property in that particular place. Because they're too isolated. To, to isolate yeah. us. That's where we're trying to do these other type of barren site projects. We're trying to get a project maybe every three miles, something like that. So uh, it's be a stepping stone type corridor. Not, so not like a corridor, like a hallway, but a stepping stone where they can hop over the adjoining forest, go for about three miles and have another project there where they can continue on to the next core property and have that connectivity between the properties. Yeah. So that's what's happened on with our uh, kind of our resident birds. You know, they're only moving just a little bit right now and, and they're hanging on to those cores because they have to have something a little bit closer by. And we actually have a connection with Minnesota, too, at St. Christ State Park from Crex Meadows. That's less than three miles, and they're doing some barren habitat there. And there is a bird that showed up and started doing some lucking behavior. We don't know if it came from Minnesota or Wisconsin, but it's cool that we have that connection with Minnesota and, and bridging into that other population, the east-central part of the state. So is that lack a vacant lek, and then all of a sudden a bird showed up? Yeah, it was brand new habitat that they created okay. through a Barron's plan that they were implementing and doing some prescribed burning. And they all had a big blowdown in 2011 and lots of salvage cutting, too. So that caused okay. a, a greater opening to form. And then, Dan, at Muckway, you guys have done your translocation project. You found out what birds will do when uh, you bring them in from someplace else. Yeah. So, you know, we translocated 162 birds from Minnesota, from northwest Minnesota. So they kind of came from a place that doesn't look like Barron's. It looks more like our heavy soil. We did that because we had two males left that we could find. We suspect there's a few more birds on the Barron's before we started the project, but not a lot more. Maybe a dozen. So we were able to get our hands on some dollars through a, a grant initiative the Forest Service was having and lined up our partners DNR, the tribes, retired folks. I mean, we had retired hunters, Wisconsin Sharp-Tailed Grouse Society, Minnesota Sharp-Tailed Grouse Society. I mean, we took on, we took all comers. If you were interested in helping, we took you. And we translocated 162. And our goal was, our permit allowed 200, but our goal was to really get females. Just bringing a lot of boys to a place where you already have some boys doesn't buy you very much. You know, so we needed to have somebody to make offspring. Um, so we emphasized on females and we moved those 162. And, and in the end, all is a few more males than females, uh, just on the basis of what we caught. Because we caught over 500 sharptails in Minnesota. We handled a lot of birds in three years. And so when we brought them to Makwa, we did kind of a, a what I call a semi-hard release. So they were transported in a crate the day they were caught in Minnesota. They were put in van, taken to Grand Rapids, tr- transferred to another vehicle, Brought to Makwa, met by a person to take it out to the Barrens. We played the calls for them and opened the box and let them walk out. Uh, what was neat is is birds would come in and greet them as we kept adding birds. And birds so, that were already there. So the first year we brought birds, the very two males that were left at Makwa that we could account for on, on one of the historic leks. 
of which we have several, but we had two main leks in the last few years and one blunked out. And then, so there were two males on this lek. We played the call. They came in and welcomed the newcomers. And it kind of went that way. Every time birds came, we got more and more welcomers. But what we learned about them is, as you would expect, a certain percentage stayed, a certain percentage didn't survive very long, and a certain percentage decided to go walk about. We had a hen go to Barnes Barron. So this kind of relates to that core property and that stepping stone. We had a hen. We didn't know when we caught them. We didn't know at what stage they had been bred or not in Minnesota. But we were taking them during breeding season. So we assumed there was some copulation had occurred. So we had a hen that we put on our mukwa north of Ino. She ended up flying, flying around and ended up at Barnes Barrens. And that year she made a nest and laid her eggs. And for the longest time, she started with a clutch of 13, then it went to six. And then we kind of lost track of all of that. But it shows that they were able to seek. We had a, we've had several males pick up and move. The farthest move I'm aware of is one showed up at Canal Parkway on the little strip of land by Duluth. No it was way. a male somebody saw in the park and reported it on eBird. <laughs> but we've had a male show up at Namakagan and he got harvested. How we know where our birds are is some of them wear radios and others have color band systems on their legs. So we know who we've trapped and what sex they are. But what we've noticed is we always have these forays. You would expect that in a population. You expect that in translocates. But birds are staying on the Mukwa Barrens. We have a second lek now is populated. So the first lek went from 2 to 22. That's a good spring count. We were kind of off and on counting. We have a second Lex opened up that has that had 11 males on it at last count this spring. So we've already gone. And we flushed other birds across the landscape. We know we had broods last year. We know we should have some broods this year. We've been trying not to spend a lot of time pinpointing broods for a couple of reasons. Number one, we don't want to lay a predator scent track every time we go to a nest. Sure. And number two is just the sheer manpower when you get, because we put radios across three years on birds. So there's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 25 radios still floating around out there. So just the sheer manpower of figuring out. But we have some data that shows they moved over by Ulu, then came back. They moved down by the airport in Ashland, stood on the runway, then disappeared for a while, then reappeared at the airport. So you get those kind of movements. Those birds are willing to move. Mm-hmm. Hence, if we can get connectivity, we know birds will take care of business in that that exchange of genetic material between populations will occur versus having it all just breeding amongst itself. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not uncommon. I've seen sharptails when I've been up at Mucka way down south of the highway heading this direction. What they're doing there, I don't know. But I suspect it's a fall dispersal and the bird's kind of looking around and it's making some decisions. Do I keep flying or do I turn around and come back where it comes? We would expect that. The deal with that is that's why you need big landscapes in a bigger, you need a bigger wide open spot than, mm-hmm. than what we're, we're currently at, even though we're doing good work. Yeah. We just need more. Yeah, and, you know, certainly with sharptails, um, you know, you look at upland game birds, they're fairly, they stick to fairly small home ranges. They're not known for document, you know, seeing documented large movements, but we've seen birds move 50 miles in some cases. So, and that's, it's important. Um, and that, that's a good thing knowing that the work Bob does that these birds will venture out and find the new habitat as it's, as it's developed. And from a genetic standpoint, that's of course, very important. Looking at our population here in Wisconsin, some genetic work was done, uh, just over about a decade ago. What they found is that looking across all of our subpopulations as a whole, the, the population in the state of Wisconsin has fairly good genetic diversity. However, when you look at each of these subpopulations, 
you can see they're fairly isolated because there's a relatively high amount of inbreeding, for example. So it demonstrates the importance of the work that Bob is doing to try and increase that genetic connectivity. And it's good for us to know that these birds are, are highly mobile for a resident game bird and can find these areas and, and establish new legs. Certainly, unlike rough grouse, sharp tails are pretty capable of covering some miles and making big, long flights. That's How far was the, the hen that you put in Mach 1 and ended up to the south? So my best guess is around 15 miles. Bob, you would have, or Mark, you might have. 15 to 20, 15 I think to it was. 20, yeah, yeah, somewhere in there. And we've had several other birds make a foray out to that Barnes Barrens and come back. So we know that the, there's this constant search. And we we actually fully expected, and we did have one male fly to Marengo. You know, you have that big flats once you get south of Ashland there, that big agricultural flats. And, you know, my thought was, ah, they'll find that and sit on that because it looks a lot more like Minnesota. Mm -hmm. It looks a lot more like home. Surprisingly, yeah, we had a couple of birds foray out there. The one male at, at Marengo kind of is still hanging around out there somewhere. But the other one came back. And so... They're capable. I mean, I manage sharp tails in North Dakota, okay. and I've had radio collared females take off and go 60 miles and hang out and spend a winter and then turn around. And the next spring, she's right back on the lek where I caught her and put a radio on her the spring before. Wow. So they're capable of a really long move if they're forced to. It's not in their nature to want to, but they will do it if they, if they have to, sure. if there's a reason. As far as connectivity goes, talking about these habitat pieces, certainly, and we can maybe get into the northern wisconsin the area that we're talking about is, is there's a lot of public land but it's certainly not all public land and we know these birds are using both private and public because they don't use onyx maps and they don't know where they are <laughs> but what what is the research telling us what is there a desired are you trying to that stepping stone pattern are you looking at hey can we get a piece every three miles or what is what's the number and how are we looking at that? That's essentially what we're looking for is a piece every three miles. Okay. We do have some projects where you know they're a little bit closer together, but so what's wrong with having instead of just having a straight stepping stone line, maybe have a couple projects they almost build like another area for a core population. So we think that's a great thing to have as well. Um, so that's the stuff we're looking at. It's really a huge uh, partnership project. It's all about partnerships. Uh, I was giving a tour yesterday with Mark and I was looking at the map and almost instead of saying the, the county forest in particular the, or the private industrial forest, I was ready, I was ready to say people's names because yeah. that's who you're working with right there. It's sure. all a big collaborative project. Everybody's got a, got a piece in, in this huge puzzle and, and everybody can be part of the solution. So it's a great thing to kind of work within that partnership and see partner stepping in, stepping up not only to help uh, implement what we're trying to get done for the bird, but also be part of that huge partnership for everybody involved. Our, our public lands and the non, non-industrial private, private forests as well are uh, really huge players in this because really when we're talking about managing a scale that's necessary for sharp tails, we need we need these large tracts of forest where we have the ability to manage at that scale for them. So we're focused, I think, a lot more on those large timber producers and the public lands, but our ability to work with private landers, landowners, for example, is pretty limited in this landscape just because of the scale of, of uh, sharp tails habitat requirements. Sure. And not only the scale, but even some of the practices to uh, get jack pine to come back and help to really mimic that huge epic wildfire that was maybe had 200 foot flame links and you know spotting fire out a half mile. We don't do that anymore. We're trying yeah. to keep that from happening. So to mimic that type of conditions, we're not just only doing timber harvest; we're also doing scarification, as it's known as, where you come in with a, something called a roller chopper, an anchor chain, just basically a bunch of metal. You drag it around the site to buff up the soil, so you can get seed contact with that jack pine coming back from seed for natural regeneration. 
implementation of that. So that's something that's a little bit harder for a lot of the private landowners to do to their forests. Sure. Um, and it's important to do. What we've been looking at, uh, we've had some reports looking at what's happening around the state with jack pine. We're finding that, in the last, well, since 1983, we've lost about half of our jack pine in, in, in the northwest sands. So we're like, well, that's a lot. It's a big loss for, for a tree species. That what's contributing to that loss? It, it's, well, one, we don't have fires anymore. Okay. So it doesn't regenerate that way. It is okay. the fire tree. And also to regenerate it, you need to do these, you know, go above and beyond normal practices to gotcha. get to come back. Okay. And in some places where uh, it's dry and sandy, we're, we're doing that, uh, especially on the county forest level and private industrial forest level, they're doing it because they know it's important to do. In other places, it's it's maybe more of a, it's getting me more aspen because it's more moist. And without that big fire response to set it back, aspen's coming in and then they're not going to fight it there. So they're just going to pick our battles and do it on the high, dry, sandy sites. I guess from a moving forward perspective, we know that we need more habitat and we need it to be connected. Are there other goals beyond that? Are there population goals for the sharp-tailed grouse? Is there a sharp-tailed grouse management plan? How does that work? Yeah, there, there is a sharp-tailed grouse management plan. I believe it was passed back in 2011, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. So given that it, our management plans are generally uh, 10 years in, in scope, we're about to the, to the point we're going to probably start revisiting that plan here in the near future. The existing plan, even though it's less than 10 years old, it feels outdated in a lot of ways just because our sharp tail numbers have changed so much in these last 10 years. I would say certainly the focus of the plan was more on habitat. And I'd say really the biggest product to come out of the plan is the Northwest Sands Habitat Corridor Plan that Bob's responsible for implementing. That was kind of an offshoot of the, a product of the, the rough, or excuse me, the, the sharp tail grouse management plan. Yeah. So that was, you know, I, I think that was really the core that we were focusing on. This next plan, I do likely see it uh, a bit more as a, a recovery plan, if you will, where we'll likely be a bit more heavy on those population goals, given that our population has dropped to a fairly a fairly low level, specifically on what we call non-managed properties. And these are private lands or, or perhaps public lands that were impacted by large-scale disturbances in the past, budworm outbreaks, large-scale wildfires, large-scale blowdowns, where we're coming in doing salvage cuts at a very large scale, and that's, of course, benefiting sharptails. But it's difficult to depend on natural disasters, essentially, to, to keep this species persisting. Sure. And what we are seeing is that, at least on the managed properties, the, the areas that Dan and Bob are managing, we are moving the needle, and uh, our, our populations have been fairly stable. So now the question is, I think, what do we what do we do to mimic some of those large-scale disturbances that we saw in the past and see some growth in this population? So. Yep. Could some put some scale to that budworm outbreak that happened in the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, it was a huge outbreak. I think of a like a township size area affected where basically it was all clear cut and started over again. So literally 36 square miles. I mean, just wow. big. Yeah, big. And that was a that was the last really big boom in sharp-tailed grouse habitat. Um, another example is a Gerben Road fire from 2013, about 7,400 acres burned. Day of the fire, there's not a single luck on, on, on the footprint of the fire. Now there's four lucks. Wow. So they moved in just like they should in that time. It's been pretty neat to, to see. Terrible wildfire, yeah. yeah. People right. lost homes right. and uh, you know a lot of property loss there. But uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch the, the ground come back the way it's supposed to. Yeah, and at some point well. you move beyond the tragedy and you look at it for what it is and for, for many wildlife, that's that's a big boon. 
for people that are interested in these birds, I've never made it to a lek, but I know that's that's a very popular thing and it's a really cool thing that people do. And I know there are some opportunities, I think, on the Schwamigan and and on, on County Forest, State Forest. Yeah, I think, I think Brian's, uh, we've traditionally done it on both properties. We don't do it on uh, Riley anymore, but Brian has reestablished the observation post up on Mukwa now that you have something to look at. Sure. So, and I know... DNR side has some as well. Yeah, Friends of the Amacoggin Barons, those friends group of the Amacoggin Barons, uh, they have a online scheduling where you can book um, a time in one of their three blinds on that property. It's a really cool thing to do. Uh, we hear back from people that do that counts. They come, a lot of the same people come every year. A lot of photographers come. Mm-hmm. We've had reports of people that come from California do it every, they try to get out every year and they're photographers and they have pictures on their walls in California and then people wow. are like, what is going on? What is this stuff on your walls? And they get to tell them the story. So a lot of cool stories coming out of that. Also, the Douglas County Wildlife Area is also known as the Bird Sanctuary. They also yes. have an observation uh, line there on, right on the Lex. You get great, great footage there, and I believe that the Friends of the Bird Sanctuary is also a good contact for that. What else from a research perspective? I think all of you guys would probably, if you had an unlimited budget and you could do all the research you wanted, you'd be doing more research. Yeah. What are the research needs? I'd say first and foremost is getting the vital rates of our population here in Wisconsin, looking at things like nesting success and brood survival. You know, it's something that's fairly well studied, but it's very difficult to take a study out of, say, South Dakota, where they have a very healthy population, and apply that to our much smaller and and far more isolated population. So just getting some of those vital rates, those, those demographics, allows us to then build things like demographic models where we can take a much more robust look at the long-term viability of the population. Yeah, being on the committee, you, know, you, you want to provide great stuff for the bird. You want the bird to do well in conservation. You also want to provide some hunting if you can. Right. And it's, so it's a tricky line there. So now we know our current model, we, we needed to have more birds. Now the question is, okay, how many birds is that? And we like to get to that level based on our conservation mindset to get there, but also to provide opportunity for hunters to still get out and, and, right. and interact with this bird because it's a great hunt. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun some fun stuff to do. I got to do it back in the early 2000s when we saw tags and it's something I'd love to be able to do again and I think my kids would be great. Yeah. yeah, so better understanding those hunting impacts on a small population is mm-hmm. also, I think, very important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we have to continue to look at what we're doing with fire. You know, we're applying fire um, and we're monitoring, but I, there's a lot to know about fire yet on this landscape because Fire has not been very well studied on this landscape other than put it out. Correct. So we're burning, trying to figure out our windows, doing more, but that's a place where even more intensity, especially as our climate changes, as we get more precipitation than we've had in the past, do we need to change that fire return rate in order to deal with the precipitation that's being delivered to us? And so I think that's another place because fire will ultimately be probably the biggest tool in our toolbox over time. Yeah, I, I think there's room for research on a number of fronts related to habitat fire, certainly. And also with Bob implementing this rolling barrens model, it's a fairly new concept. And, you know, there's questions, what size is the best core size sure. and how large should those rotational cuts be? How do we best implement this strategy to maximize benefits for sharp-tailed grouse? Yeah, definitely. It's a lot like the Young Forest Initiative. We're utilizing the working forest to mimic the effects of the large, large-scale wildfires. So we can go out on a place like, say, the German Road Fire and say, okay, there's a luck here. This habitat here is good. And you can look around and, yeah, you're in the middle of two-mile section. Okay, this is what they're looking for. Yep. So you can go there and say, okay... 
foresters were working with were trying to mimic this, but not with a wildfire, a terrible wildfire. We're trying to do with an economic model that brings in uh, money, and we can do it just trying to change our philosophy on how we do our timber harvest and then just provide this large block style habitat. Yeah, it's really a fascinating topic. And with the rolling barrens type stuff, that's you, know, you might have models and stuff that you can plug that into, but you just can't hit fast forward and see what's going to happen, right? It's such a long-term planning that you just have to, you just got to get in there and do it and adapt as you go. Yeah. I went to two of our projects that are now over 700 acres in size this spring expecting, okay, they're going to move here. Well, well, they just got cut. I mean, there's hardly anything growing yet. They got to have yeah. something to hide in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of fun and we're hoping to see success soon. What are the factors that play into brood survival for sharp tails? You know, what's an ideal spring for them? And because Dan, you mentioning the climate change and more rain, that's mm-hmm. what got me thinking on that. Yeah, yeah, certainly two two big factors are temperature and precipitation, and they somewhat act interact. I'll say where when you combine low temperatures with uh, above average precipitation, really it's uh, it bodes uh, badly for for sharp tail grouse yeah. broods. Shortly after hatching, they're just largely unable to th- regulate their body temperature. So when you combine cool temperatures with, with precipitation, it's it's a death sentence for chicks. Yeah. And then maybe not the flip side, but the additional, you need some rain because they need insects, right? right they need right. insects on that habitat. So I, I hear people that bird hunt more out in North Dakota, and I went out there last year, but that's one of the big things that they're looking at is do we have grasshoppers out there? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yep. And it's interesting because the paradigm, having uh, been involved in managing sharptails in two different environments, the rule in North Dakota was this, and I managed sharptails there for several years and studied sharptails there for several years, was dry was good. Why? Dry made grasshoppers, but you had just enough moisture to get the buffalo berry to flush. Gotcha. That would be, that was not a year to hunt ducks. It was a year to hunt sharptails and hunts. (laughs) Pheasants, if you're a pheasant hunter. And then in the reverse, when it's wet, as Mark described here, you know, what we, we have is we don't, we don't have that distinct cycle as much as the plains and the prairie does. So it's, we're always sitting on this teetered edge. And so it's always trying to understand that, yes, they need those things to eat. So we need some moisture, but our sands aren't so poor that they won't grow vegetation quickly. So it's trying to not get so much that all of a sudden flush and now you're back battling habitat conditions. And so it's a really interesting paradigm because I have to think about it much differently than I did in North Dakota 30 years ago where I managed, you know, several thousand sharp-tailed grouse because it's quicker here and the soils will lean one way or the other really quickly. Yeah. And then the the timing of the precipitation is ultimately what's really important Uh, because getting a little, you know, you're looking at, we'll say a three week period or so in June where that's when the chicks are, are you're hitting peak hatch and that's when there's the most chicks on the landscape. Some sharp tails will re-nest if, if needed, but you know, that's when you get the big flush of, of, uh, of hatching. And it's really in those first couple weeks of life where they're most susceptible to hypothermia. So that's, that's when the rainfall, rainfall really matters, but getting some of those summer storms, you know, more into July, that's when that can really help with insect production mm-hmm. and get those chicks, the protein they need to grow. Yeah. So. I was thinking that yesterday out on Amacogan Barrens, there's a bunch of grasshoppers are all yep. over the place there. And like, oh, if we got chicks up and, and fully feathered, they should be doing well here. And mentioning North Dakota there, I, I would imagine that sharptails being a bird of opportunity with respect to nutrition, diet and nutrition, they, would the habitat here, there might be more of a diverse variety of stuff for them to get at. 
Yeah, I, I would say this, and you know, Mark's lived in the prairie, Bob's been out to the prairie, but my observation in my, my years in both North and South Dakota is those birds are much more tied to a food source, distinct food source at distinct moments than they are here. Gotcha. We're, we're actually a gravy train in a lot of ways for an upland game bird, whether it's rough grouse or whether it's sharp tails. If North Dakota birds had this luxury, there'd be even a lot more of them. Yeah. And so that's a real boon. So, you know, we, we often think, you know, I always say that it's really about, as Mark well described, getting, not having that rain at that time, hoping you get the rain uh, for the bugs and the blueberries, because they'll sit out and eat blueberries in a lot of these places as well. And then the second part of it is, is sustaining that cover going into fall. You know, one of the things on, on the populations we have on the forest, um, the department doesn't have a hunting season for obvious reasons. One's you know, relatively small and stable. The other one's just kind of been rebuilt or is in process of rebuild. And so what I always tell folks who come to hunt rough grouse, because we get a lot of rough grouse hunters from out of state is, if you want to hunt these places, there will be rough grouse around the edges of them, but please do not harvest them. And if you don't know what they look like, I'll give you a real quick primer, but, you know, go on Google and watch so that you can separate them. Yep. Because folks from Ohio and Pennsylvania, unless they go out west on it, probably never seen a sharp tail, but yep. they'll come up here to hunt rough grouse and woodcock. You could very easily, they look like a grouse for sure. And it's, if you don't, if you don't have that, that identification. And I mean, I've never flushed a rough grouse and a sharp tail on the same day, but certainly that would be, that would be possible here. I guess a, a good rule would be if the bird gets up and he's laughing at you, don't shoot. Yeah, <laughs> right. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's really ironic on our Riley property, because if you came to me and said, Hey, we want to go shoot woodcock, that would be one of the places I would want to send you because it, because of that shrubland management for sharp tails. Yeah. It produces turkeys and woodcock like crazy, yeah. you know. So it's one of those places, if you're like a diehard woodcock guy, it would be a place I want to send you. But first, you're going to get a, a kind of a primer from me about don't shoot the following things. Yeah, right. Um, they're off limits. Um, yeah. And definitely at Cracks Meadows, when I used to hunt sharp, sharp tails there, you'd flush plenty of rough grouse mixing that barren's habitat. Sure. Um, it's usually a surprise. But like you say, if they're chuckling, laughing at you, yep. yeah, yep. you got a sharp tail now. Yeah, yep. Yep. definitely. Well, Anything else? I mean, people listening to this, primarily upland hunters, but people that are concerned with conservation and upland birds, anything anything they can do to help? What should they be aware of? Anything, any kind of final thoughts for, for listeners? Well, definitely, you know, join a friends group, friends of cracks, friends of Namakagan Barons, friends of the Bat Bird Sanctuary, Sharptail Grouse Society, yep. um, all of our partners in this. Even the St. Croix River Association is really on board with the stuff we're doing because it's native uh, landscape uh, level management on the watershed. So yeah. they're really into it too. So look at these groups and consider joining them. Yeah. And I, and I would so. say on some of these properties, you know, agency budgets are never unlimited is we do have tasks on some of these properties that volunteers could certainly do. You know, we often brush our leks in the fall or late summer. So that they're prepared for the spring. That's handwork. It doesn't, you know, we don't need a big giant piece of machinery. But, you know, if people are interested in volunteering, they may touch base with that property manager or that biologist in the area and say, hey, I've got a set of hands or a couple of buddies. You know, we do that for rough grouse all the time with Rough Grouse Society. We have other opportunities. Always looking for spring coners because with staff limitations, we don't have the time to be there every morning. What's that? So just going out to those leks and taking a tally of who's there in the morning, this many males, this many females, and taking gotcha. a ride around and recording who you saw where, at least say... Yeah, so I don't know if it's male or female, but I know it's sharp tail. It's here for two reasons. Kind of gives us a sense of population. The other thing, it helps us snoop in places there may be birds that we just do not know about with the limitations. 
And and I think Bob's got a great idea. You know, Mako, we'd like a friends group. You know, it's one of the few properties where a friends group would be very helpful to us, you know, because there's a lot going on and, and more minds are better than one, I always say. I think the last thing I'd add is I'd, I'd just encourage folks to get out there and get to know the habitat that sharptails exist here in Wisconsin because it's very unique. I think I think all of us agree that what we're doing is about more than just sharptail grouse. These barren's habitats here in Wisconsin are of global significance. They're extremely imperiled at a global scale, and Wisconsin has some of the best last remaining tracks of, of these barren's and savanna habitats. So it's certainly a, a vitally important ecosystem for the mm-hmm. forest service for dnr and it's something we're going to continue to manage and sharptails are really just our flagship species for barren's habitat mm-hmm. where this is a very area sensitive species that's dependent on barren's habitat here if we manage for them we're also going to benefit the whole host of other species that bob's already talked about yeah. so yeah absolutely and I'll, i will just throw in that as somebody that has been recently exposed to barren's habitat and i'm learning more obviously this was very informational for me today there's a lot to appreciate about this barren's habitat gentlemen thank you so much for coming on the project upland podcast i really enjoyed it i appreciate it dan mark bob thank you guys thank Great you day. my pleasure yeah, yeah, a lot you. of fun thanks guys Thank you for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. The podcast is also brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dog Trick Callers, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.